Please turn in your Bibles if you have one. If not, there's some in the back. You can grab one. We have been studying the book, the books of First and Second Samuel, but today we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We've come to the place in the book of Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel, where the beloved king of Israel, the second king of Israel, David, has fallen. Began in chapter 11 while all the other kings were going to war. David home, he's, he's walking on the rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. She's actually cleansing herself from ceremonial defilement. And after seeing her, he sends messengers to find out who she is. And she is Bathsheba, the wife of his loyal friend and soldier, Uriah. He sees her, he, he sends a messenger, then he seizes her and commits adultery with her and she becomes pregnant. This is King David of Israel. And rather than confess his sin and repent of it, he begins this series of, of deceitful covers up, cover-ups. He, he wants to try to work out so that her husband Uriah will come back from war and have sexual intimacy with his wife and that the baby would then be, at least everyone would think, not David, but the father, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. That doesn't work, so he sends Uriah out, David sends Uriah out to war knowing that he was going to be killed. Friends like that, who needs enemies, right? David commits idolatry, he dishonors his family, he commits murder, adultery, he steals what doesn't belong to him, he bears false witness and violates the command to covet, not to covet. He's on a roll. But God declares in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 27, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Once again, showing us that no matter how great and moral you think you are, or I think I am, or how close you think your relationship with God is, we all need the gospel, the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. David is a fallen human being, just like the rest of us. The only difference was that he was king over his nation. You're not, I'm not. He had the opportunity blaring to blow it in a mighty way. It doesn't mean we can't blow it, and some of us have blown it really bad. My prayer is that as we look at Psalm 51 and the response of David, David's proper response, is that we may, as well as David, see the truth of the gospel, that our hearts will be softened, our wills will be bent toward doing what God wants us to do because of all that he has done for us. And if you're headed down that direction and you see a, a, a major thing going on in your life, my prayer is that you will turn around. Because this story and this psalm is about Jesus, it's about the gospel, the person and work of Christ. And we see that after David's sin in chapter 11, God's grace showed up in chapter 12. God sent Nathan the prophet, and the prophet told him a story about a rich man who had a visitor, if you remember. And rather than take something from his uh, a lamb or some sort of food for this visitor that he had plenty of, he took a ewe lamb, a baby ewe lamb from a poor man. You remember the story from last week? He had plenty, but he stole what did not belong to him. And this ewe lamb would, would, would eat from the morsels of this poor man's house and drink from his cup and would lie in his arms. That's all that this poor man had. It was like a daughter to him, it says in 2 Samuel. The rich man didn't want to hear it, and the rich man took, stole, and killed, and barbecued, and gave that lamb to his visitor. And that sent David 
off the charts. He became inordinately angry and told Nathan, as as David is sitting on his throne judging Israel, he tells Nathan, if a rich man has done that, he needs to respond by giving uh, the poor man a fourfold, uh, four, four times of what he took from him, and then he should die. Remember that? And as soon as he said that, Nathan dropped the mic, right? You're the man, David. Hit David like a, a ton of bricks. In chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David just says, I have sinned against the Lord. His adultery, his murder, and all his lies has caught up with him. And then the gracious promise of God comes through the prophet of God, through the word of God. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. According to the law of God, there's no atonement for David. David should die. But it says, no, the son that you, Bathsheba has that has been produced by this adultery will die, but you will not die. And that's how we ended last week. And we'll deal with the sickness and the death of this child and the birth of another child next Sunday. But today's Psalm 51, turn there, was written by David, by King David, on the backdrop of all that I just said. David is the songwriter. David is the psalmist of Israel. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes Psalm 51 right here in our text, 2 Samuel chapter 12. When Nathan says, you have sinned. David says, I have sinned. And Nathan says, you will not die, but your son will die. And this psalm here, Psalm 51, is written, and, and it speaks of David's repentance. It speaks of David's Turning back to God, that's what repentance is. Metanoia means to have to change of mind, a change of direction. It involves the intellect, the emotion, the volition. It's a turning from sin and a turning to God. And we'll see that as we talk about this, as we look at this psalm together of David's repentance in the midst of his brokenness, of being found out of his sin. The psalm, Psalm 51, has six parts. Couldn't get to all six. I got to five. I had to cut it. It will be here all day. So we're looking at five parts. We're not going to look at the last part, verse, last couple of verses. You can do that on your own in community group. But these are the five parts that we're going to see. We're going to see David's gospel repentance. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Is centered on the mercy of God. It's about him confessing his sin. It's receiving cleansing from God. It's asking for a a new heart. And then we'll end with continuing in worship. And David will be restored. Joy will be restored. And he will worship God. So that's the five steps we're going to look at. So let's look at this psalm together. Psalm 51, the context of David's sin. He got found out. He knows he sinned. He's committed adultery, committed murder. He deserves to die. God graciously says you will not die. And David says, Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin we see immediately 
how important it is to have a good, right theology. say, oh, I don't have a theology. Yes, you do. Everybody does. Even an atheist has a theology, has an understanding of God. David rightly falls on the mercy of God. He rightly believes, his theology is telling him that God is a God of mercy, that God grants favor to those who don't deserve it. He's a God of mercy. He's also a God of steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word we've been talking about, chesed. It's a loyal love, a faithful love, a love that keeps a promise. It's a, it's a committed love, a sacrificial love. David knew because the Scripture teaches us that God is chesed. When God showed up to Moses and revealed himself to Moses, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, chesed in the Hebrew. David experienced this steadfast love from God. David has expressed that chesed. We talked about this before. That kind of love, covenantal commitment love to others. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of covenantal love. And look what it says. God is a God of abundant mercy. That's a different Hebrew word. That word means compassion. It has an emotional aspect to it, like a motherly care. David can count on the fullness of God's mercy because of his covenantal love and his compassionate love toward him. So after he's crushed by the word of God, after he's crushed by the, by the message given to him by Nathan, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, David falls on what David knows about God. David's saying, Lord God, don't treat me as I deserve. Treat me graciously because of your covenantal promise that you have made to your people because you are a God of compassion. We have to come to God the same way. Do you know that about who God is? Do you have a proper theology that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God of covenantal love, that God is a God of abundant mercy, compassionate, isn't that the same story when we talk about repentance? We talk about the prodigal son, Luke 15. Doesn't the son do the same thing? He comes to his senses in Luke 15, and he realizes he doesn't deserve forgiveness. Just like David, but that he still belongs to the family. What does he say? Father, the son says, I, I, I am not worthy to be called your son, but he, there's a sense of belonging still. And David's saying the same thing. I don't deserve to be forgiven, but you're a compassionate God. You're a gracious God. You're a God of steadfast love. I fall on your mercy. Not because I deserve it. Not because there's anything in me that should compel you to love me, but because of who you are. David sees his full range of God's love and mercy. But David also sees his full range of his sin. In, in the text, in chapter, um, in chapter 2, you'll see the three different Hebrew words. Transgression means disobedience. It's a defiance. It's, it's a, um, a, a revolt against God. That's what transgression means. Iniquity is, is, is crookedness, deformity, perversion, like a, a tree that is gnarled and twisted. Sin, of course, is missing the mark of God's perfection. It's sins of commission and omission. I should do this. God wants me to do this. I'm not going to do this. I shouldn't do that, but I do it anyway. Omission and commission. It's a deviation from his law, his standards. It's missing the mark. 
And the, David uses this, and the psalmist in other places uses the three Hebrew words as a way to show us how deep and desperate and dark our sins are. That's the point. That's the picture. It is so deep that David knows that there is nothing that he can do about it. So David prays. Praise, David prays that his transgressions, his revolts, will be what? Blotted out. Blotted out. The way a debt is removed, erased from a ledger. My, my revolt will be erased. That my iniquity, my perversion, my, my adultery, my, my wicked sinful lusts will be washed out in the same way that clothes are laundered. And he prays that my sin, I know I violated your law and imperfections, are to be cleansed. The imperfections should be separated or, or smelted from precious metals, separated. That's, that's his prayer. All, all, the, all the counseling, all the talking things out, all, all the pitted parties you might throw for yourself, now, I'm all for counseling, please, I didn't say I'm not, but all the counseling, all the confessing of sin to one another, all the pity parties you might throw, all the ways in which you say, I could never do that. That person is worse than him. All those things cannot do what only God can do. I'm all about conf- confess your sins once or another, James. If you know anything about me, I'm all for counseling and talking things out. But only God can do this. Only the mercy of God can do this. Only he can take your sin and blot it out and erase it. Only he can take your sin and wash it as, it's being, as, it's be, as if it's being laundered. Only he can take your imperfections that way. Only he can cleanse you from your sin. This is God's chesed in action. It blots, it washes, it cleanses. I'm falling on your mercy, Lord. It's centered. Look at it's a confession too. Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be what? Justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Genuine gospel repentance, we'll talk about this some more, happens, and you know it's happening in your life when blame-shifting, bargaining, rationalizing is put away. Nothing in this prayer suggests that David wants to come to God and make some sort of deal with him. Listen, let's talk this out. I mean, I've served you for all these years. I I, I solidified the kingdom. I've done all these good things in the past. It's really not that bad in comparison. He's not trying to explain his way. Nobody doesn't try to do what y'all do and I do. I'll be better next time. How many times have we said that? When we sin, our our natural inclination, I'll say my natural inclination is to, is to say it's not really that bad. 
It was just a moment of weakness. But not David. David says, my sin is ever before me. It was ultimately against you and you alone. We talked about this last week. David is not saying that his sin did not affect or he did not sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation and Joab and all the other people he sinned against. That's what he's saying. But, but family, sin by its very definition is against God because God declares what's right and what's wrong. Sin is ultimately also against God because when we sin against each other, and we do, I do, when I sin against my wife, I'm sinning against the one who has been created in the imago Dei, in the image and likeness, who has uh, uh, um, been endowed by God with value and worth. Injuring one another is bad, yes, but what David is saying, this awfulness of sin is an attack against God himself. And when that reality strikes and when you know you're repenting in the gospel and the truth of who God is and what God has done, when you know that, you are not going to try to soften its judgment. You know what? You, you know you'll be honest. And, and that's what David says. David says, I've done what evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is justified in his judgment God is blameless in all that God does, but gospel-centered repentance knows that. It's an increasing knowledge of the holiness of God and, and your sin, and that you and I, will, will, God would be just and blameless to damn me for my sin. Anyone can turn around and stop doing something and say it's wrong. But gospel-centered repentance owns the sin, recognizes it's against God, recognizes that I deserve to be judged and damned, but that I am forgiven by the sheer grace, mercy, compassion, blood-bought salvation God has given to me. Praise God for that. David goes even further. He's saying this sin is so bad, I am... I'm sinful from my birth. See what he says? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying, you know, my mother was out of wedlock. You know, I was born in this immoral way. That's not what that means. What he's saying is sin is within me. As a result of Adam's fall, Paul would tell us, the entire human race has been affected by sin. We may not be as bad as we could be, but every part of our human existence is affected, stained, and marred by sin, whether it's emotional, whether it's our thoughts, whether it's mind, and we call it total depravity. It's, it's reached the totality of our being. And, and David's saying, I, 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 I'm sinful from the moment I had consciousness of life. Anyone who's ever had a child knows that true. Even at birth. Paul would write again about Adam that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Each of us can say with Bob Dylan, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. We love to blame, I love to blame, our deeds and misdeeds on others. I mean, that's, that's just the way to go. That's the way to go. Now, l- let me say this too. There's nothing wrong and some of you who love to, to, to shepherd people, love people, you'll know what I mean. There's nothing wrong with saying, I have a propensity 
to respond a certain way. I have this reactionary action because I've been doing it for so long. This is the way I've been taught. This is my environment. This is my upbringing. All those things can be true. And it's good to know why we're, we, we respond the way we do. But we're never justified ever blaming anyone for our sin. Okay? I know why I respond certain ways, and i got to figure out why, but I never, ever will say, I hope to never say, I don't want to ever say, it's that fault. I was raised this way. Uh, Okay, deal with it. Confess it. Repent of it. God will forgive me. And what you see here in David is this, this contrast between David was running, hiding, deceiving, didn't want anyone to know about his sin, now, all of a sudden, David is what? Repenting, confessing, and not blaming Bathsheba, not blaming his upbringing. He's confessing and repenting of his sin. It's now my fault. Before I was, hide everything. Now it's my fault. And that's a good contrast. Listen, family, that's a good contrast between gospel-centered repentance, turning from sin in the gospel, and religious-centered repentance, okay? Let me explain. I've said this before, just in case you're new here. Religion, when I say religion, religion is I obey, I, I follow the moral standards, I'm being morally obedient, I'm doing what God wants me to do, and therefore I am forgiven, I get forgiven, I, I, now I'm accepted because of all that I do. I'll do my way into acceptance, into forgiveness, okay? That's religion. The gospel is I am loved, I am forgiven, I am accepted by Christ's moral perfection. All that he has done in my place and therefore, because I'm already accepted and loved in the gospel, therefore I will respond in obedience. Big difference between the two, okay? Now, religious people who, who want to be morally obedient, doing the right thing in order to receive forgiveness, are threatened by genuine confession of their sins. Because their only hope in life is to live a life that is pleasing to God in order to be forgiven and accepted. And therefore, when it comes to the, for them to confess their sins, to actually acknowledge their sin, it becomes traumatic. It becomes threatening to them. It's only when they're, they're pushed to the point of they have to say, all right, you got me. Because their only hope is in their moral goodness. And their moral goodness is what they failed on, so they will have a hard time confessing it because that's what that's their life is based on. That's what their salvation is based on. And they can't let go of that. And if they're forced to, they'll grudgingly, and repentance is very traumatic. It's very, it's very threatening to them. That's how religious people repent. Gospel-centered people repent, hopefully easier because... We can acknowledge our sin because we know deep inside that our acceptance, love, and forgiveness is all that Christ has done, not what I do, not our moral deeds. And that makes it easier to admit that we're flawed. Why? Because we won't be cast off if we confess the truth of our sin. Our acceptance and forgiveness is not based on what we do, but what Christ has already done. That should make it easier for gospel-centered repentance. See the difference? Dr. Keller writes this. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. 
So it is not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. Whereas in religion, we repent as little as possible, but the more we feel accepted and loved in the gospel, the more and more often we will be repenting. Although there is some bitterness in any repentance, in the gospel there is ultimately a sweetness. The more we see our flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to us. The more aware we are of God's grace and our acceptance in Christ, the more able we are to drop our denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of our sin. So if we have a hard time, if I have a hard time confessing as David is just letting it all hang out, it may be because we're trying to earn our way. And the very thing that we're holding on to as our acceptance and forgiveness is being threatened. But if it's Christ... I'm admitting it. See the difference? Centered, confession, cleansing. David picks up again in verse 6 where he left off in verse 1 and 2. Behold, you delight in truth, in your inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God wants us to be honest. And that may sound a shock to you. He wants us to come clean. That may be another shock to you. Proverbs 28, if you conceal your transgressions, you'll not prosper. If you confess and forsake them, that's repentance, you'll obtain mercy. Proverbs 28. And, and God is teaching David. God's grace is teaching David. God is giving David wisdom. And David will pray this prayer in Psalm 139. You know, I, as, as I wrote this in my notes, and I thought, this is such a great prayer. I used to pray this prayer all the time 27 years ago. Well, I got saved 30 years ago, but so long ago that, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't say this prayer a whole lot, but it's a great prayer. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there are any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. That was, used to be my prayer all the time. I'm, I'm going to pick it up again. That's David's prayer. He's aware that he can be self-deceived. He's even said, even inwardly from birth, I've been bent towards sin. You delight in truth. Teach me. And then David prays as, as, as he's being honest. As he's coming clean. As he's coming clean, he's asking for God's cleansing. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The word purge is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It actually comes from the word sin. It literally means to de-sin, D-E, de-sin. In other words, I want to be completely all sin removed. I don't want any possible retaining of sin in any way. Purge me. De-sin me with hyssop. Hyssop, you're not sure what that is. It's a small plant. Maybe some, some of you know what that is. It's a small plant that was used in the Old Testament like a brush. They, they, would, they would take a hyssop plant and dip it in, uh, in, in a sacrifice, the blood of a sacrifice animal, and they would use it, let's say, in, in a leper's home. They would go and they would sprinkle the leper's home so that uh, he would be clean, or if you came in contact with a dead body, they would take hyssop, dip it in the sacrificial blood of a, of a lamb or a goat, and they would sprinkle it, and then they would announce, be clean. And that's what David is doing. He's taking that up for himself. Wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. The writer of Hebrews 
writes this, Hebrews 9. When Moses, and this gives you kind of insight of, of what hyssop is used. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled a scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews says, in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9. David understood that. David is saying when he says, cleanse me with hyssop, he's saying, cleanse me with blood. Forgive me, forgive me, and regard me as clean on the basis of the innocent victim who died in my place, and I shall be clean. And I'll not only be clean, look what he says, I'll be whiter than snow. The results of this, this cleansing, this dazzling, bright, white garment. Isaiah will say, come now, right? Let us reason together, uh, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Family, in the Old Testament, every time a priest would wash, would cleanse himself, it would be remindful, it would remind the nation that sin defiles us. The shedding of blood is necessary. David is saying, wash me from my sin. Some of you may feel dirty because of sin. Some of you may feel dirty because of sin that you have committed toward others. Some of you may feel dirty because of sin that has been committed toward you. Here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is you can have the filth and stench of sin washed away. You can be clean. You no longer have to live out of the identity of defilement and uncleanliness. You can live out of your new identity, washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. It is through Christ's merit we stand before the Father. Because of the blood of Jesus has been spilt. He established a new covenant that cleanses us from sin. This is the mercy of God. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. That's what gospel repentance looks like. It does not rely upon itself for cleansing. It relies upon the mercy of God. In Christ, we are clean. He took our defilement. He took our shame and filth on himself, dying for our sins so that we could be purified from our sins. And some of us have done some terrible things, like David. But know this this morning, nothing you have done or has been done to you, to you is greater than what Jesus has done for you. When Jesus touched a dead body in the New Testament, by all biblical standards, he becomes unclean and must wash. It's the only time in all of Scripture that the clean does not become unclean, but the unclean becomes clean because of Jesus. And if you touch Jesus by faith, your uncleanliness will become clean. Believe that he died for your sins. And then what, is, what, what happens? Verse 8. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Joy is the result of the work of God for God's people. It's not just an emotional expression. It is this contentment of resting in God. We'll look at verse 12 in a minute. But I, but I think, I think what, what, what David is saying is that when we live in our sin, when we continue in our sin, it saps our joy and it brings soreness to our bones. David writes this in another psalm. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away a groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David experienced the dryness, the, the, the lack of joy, this heavy hand upon God, I think, I think that's why David responded to Nathan when Nathan told him the story about the poor man and the rich man. He wanted him dead. I think that was the outcome negatively, but the outcome of the heavy hand of God on him. Kill him! Centered on God, confession of sin, cleansed. And look what David asks for. This is so beautiful. Verse 10. Create of a new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know what David is doing? David is saying, being forgiven, being cleansed is not enough because I know me. <laughs> Lord, what I need is an inner transformation. What I need is an inner restoration. What I need is inner renewal. David is saying, I need a new heart. In fact, that word uh, create, bara, is the same Hebrew word used in Hebrews 1, excuse me, Genesis 1. God created. David is saying, I need a, a radical new beginning. That's what Jesus spoke about, getting a new heart. That's what Jeremiah spoke about. Ezekiel spoke about. God, I need a new heart from you. I I cannot do this. I don't want to fall back into sin. Create in me a new heart, a right spirit, an, an established, firm, unwavering spirit. That's repentance. Confession, repentance. Lord, give me a new spirit. Let me walk with you. Create in me a new heart. And when he prays, don't cast me away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't read into that. We talked about this before. Don't read into that New Testament theology. There are, there are a couple of ways to interpret that. And let me give you two. The second one I think is accurate, although the first one could be possible. Some commentators say that David is saying, take that, thy Holy Spirit, from me. It can't happen. He's just pouring out his heart. He's being honest. He's saying something that cannot happen. He, he's, he's dealing with his, 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 um, his, his brokenness. Nowhere in the text does it say God's going to do this. This is just a cry from the heart. Maybe. I think in light of the context of Samuel, David knew very well what happened in 1 Samuel 16, that God removed his Holy Spirit from Saul. The empowerment the blessing, the enabling power for Saul to do what he had to do. It wasn't salvific, and I think that's what David is saying. I need you, Lord. 
I need your empowerment. I need your enabling. We know in the New Testament that those who have been born again, sealed with the Holy Spirit, are sealed onto the day of redemption. You can't be born again and then lose your salvation. We don't believe that here. We don't believe the scriptures even come close to teaching that here. But David is saying, don't take it. I, I need you. I need your empowerment. And then he says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore has the, just what it means in English. It means there, I, und, I knew it. I, I had this joy. There were times I walked in this joy, and now I don't have it anymore. So, so Lord, restore to me what I once had, the joy of my salvation. The joy of your salvation, excuse me. True gospel-centered repentance True gospel sentence, turning from sin and turning to God, wants a, a renewed heart, a renewed spirit, a clean heart, and a right spirit, and it brings joy. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter is preaching. It's a second sermon. He, he walks into the temple, and he heals a lame man. If you remember, silver and gold, I have none. You know the song. But what I have, I give to you. All right, I won't sing it for you. People see this lame man healed who went walking and leaping and praising God. Okay. And he turns to the crowd and he preaches the gospel and he says, repent therefore, turn back, that's what repentance is, that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. You see, gospel-centered repentance, there's a relief of the burden of sin. That's the great news. God does not want you and I to remain in the pit of despair and shame. He desires for us to come to our senses, just as David did, turn from our sin and repent and experience his unfailing love and mercy and forgiveness and be restored to the joy of his salvation. And gospel sent the repentance burdens are lifted off. Repentance brings relief and refreshing. Again, David was explosive. And now David is, is asking for a new heart, a clean heart, a renewed spirit, a willingness to follow the commands of God. And the result is joy. Prince of Preachers Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this. One of the most glorious evidences of a man being reconciled to God is when he rejoices in God. Suppose he becomes obedient to certain outward precepts, and yet be very sorry that he has to be obedient to them. Suppose he begins to repent and mourn to think that he sinned, and yet there may be a latentness in his heart, the wish that he could have his fill of sin without the fear of punishment. But when a man feels, there is no one in the world I love as I love God. For him, I would live. For him, I would die. He is everything to me. That man is perfectly reconciled to God. You can see the enmity in his heart has been slain, end quote. Do you know what's missing in this psalm? You know what's missing in this psalm? David is not talking at all about his sexual sins. Lord, give me an accountability partner, and I, I believe in them. Lord, help me in the, in the lust of my heart. Strengthen me so I don't lust after what, it's not, it's not there. He is asking for a new heart. He is asking for cleanliness. But it doesn't 
speak about his wandering eyes. Because he's asking for joy. He's asking for gladness because he knows we give way to sexual sins and to other forms of lust and covetousness because we don't have the fullness of joy and the exuberant gladness in Christ. We search it in other places. You search it in other places. I search it in other places. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Are you walking in disobedience and unconfessed sin and lost the joy of your salvation? And God is calling you to come back, to turn, to receive his mercy, have your sins blotted out, to be washed of your sins. A wonderful book by Sinclair, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. I'm reading it with a brother uh, here. It's called The Whole Christ, W-H-O-L-E, Christ. He writes this about joy and salvation. He writes this. In the context of faith, the repentant sinner is immediately, fully, and finally justified at the beginning of his Christian life, the moment he gets saved. No wonder joy was released and assurance flowed. The joy of your salvation. And once the joy has been returned because of genuine repentance, look at verse 12. He says, uphold with me a a, a willing spirit. God requires the cleanse, the wash, the, the renewed people to have a willing spirit. The proof of that is what we find in the psalm. Verses 13 through 17 is proof and evidence that there has been repentance, there has been forgiveness, there's been a turning and a willing spirit in the rest of the psalm. But look where it starts in verse 13. I'll teach your transgressions your ways. Sinners will return to you. You see what David is saying? David is saying, because God is a God of steadfast love, washes and cleanses repentance people's sins, gives them a new heart, renews their their willingness to follow him, restores their joy, I'm going to be committed to tell that truth. That gospel reality, that marvelous, beautiful message, the person and beauty and work of Jesus to others. To to others. I, I want them to experience it. I want them to return to the Lord. David's not even content with being forgiven, to being cleansed, to have a willing spirit. He says, I want to teach sinners your way. That's gospel transformation. That's gospel restoration, living on mission. And finally, center on the mercy of God. Confess your sins. Receive cleansing from God. Have a new created heart. Have a new heart. And look what he's confident in worship. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise you. God, deliver me and I will sing. Forgive me according to your righteousness, your faithfulness, your promise. That's what he's saying. Your promise to forgive those who repent and come to you and my lips and my mouth will declare your greatness. That's why we sing the gospel here. That's why we rehearse the gospel here. That's why Pastor Ricky and much of what he does here is rehearsing and singing the truth of the gospel, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Our lips will praise you and sing. 
John Piper praises what joy in God does when obstacles are taken out of the way. That is what he is praying for. Oh, God, overcome everything in my life that keeps my heart dull and my mouth shut when they ought to be praising, make my joy irrepressible, end quote. Verse 16, you did not light and sacrifice. If that was the case, I'd give it to you. You will not be pleased with burnt offering, the sacrifice of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. David's not saying, you know what, forget the Old Testament. Forget all the sacrifice. We'll talk about it at the end of the psalm. What he's saying is, and emphasizing is, the best gift is meaningless without a broken and contrite heart. Kidner, God is looking for the heart that knows how little it deserves and how much it owes. Looking for that contract broken heart. David has been broken before the Lord. David is broken before the Lord. David has, re, re, David has understood the mercy and grace of God and begins, excuse me, ends here where he began, falling on the mercy of God. Deliver me, verse 14, from my blood guiltiness, O God, my salvation. Blood guiltiness, you know what that's for? You know what that stands for? That's for the blood that he shed of an innocent man. His name is Uriah. That's what he's saying. David's arrangement of him to be killed is blood guiltiness. The thought is, Lord, be true to who you are. You're my savior. You're my deliverer. But how can God just deliver the blood guiltiness of David? Remember the context. Nathan confronted David. And when David came to his senses, I've sinned against God, Nathan said to him in chapter 12, the Lord has put away your sin nevertheless, because by his this deed, what you have done, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. When David's little boy died, we'll look at that. The one who was born to Bathsheba, we can be sure that the boy did not die as a payment an atonement for David's sin. No, no, no. Why? Because unless you have, somehow you can be born without being in Adam, without the implication of the curse of Adam's broken covenant, you and I, sinners, cannot atone for someone else's sin. David's son didn't die for his sin. God's son died for David's sin. God's son died for David's sin. Now watch this. Look at the text. David says, cast me not away from thy presence. And God doesn't do that. You know why God doesn't do that? Because on the cross, Jesus was cast away from the presence of God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you cast me away from thy presence? Everything David says here, don't do to me, God. God didn't do to him because God did it to his own son. In David's place, in David's place, in my place, in your place, and dies, why have you forsaken me? As the sin and, and the punishment and the wrath you and I deserve is put on the substitute, and his name is Jesus. Now, I want to end here. Listen. In the context of forgiveness, in substitution, in blood, in, in atonement, look again with me at verse 7. When David cries out, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean... Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Do you know in the Old Testament where the first mention of hyssop was used? Exodus chapter 12. The Jews were told 
to dip hyssop, first time, in the sacrificial lamb's blood and take the hyssop and put it on their door frames and doorposts, the first Passover. Then at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons, but passed over the houses where the sacrificed lamb's blood was marked. And on that night, or in the next morning, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. Because when the justice of God comes down, everyone is guilty. And if you have not taken shelter under the redeeming and substitutionary blood of the lamb, dipped in that hyssop, put over your doorframe, you would die. But if you have, and you went under the shelter... You were redeemed. What David is crying out for is the hope of the gospel. David needed someone who would blot out all his guilt. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the true and better Passover lamb. The true and better son dying in our place, absorbing the wrath of God so that his wrath will pass over us. David needed someone to create a clean heart for him. That was Jesus who came to cleanse our leprous souls. That no amount, no amount of reformation incentive could ever cure. David needed someone to renew his steadfast spirits, creating him a clean heart, a new heart. That someone is Jesus, who sent the Holy Spirit after he died and rose again as a sign of God's grace toward us. David knew, listen, David knew how deep his sin was. The penalty for his sin, the penalty for our sin was death. But this is the gospel. This is the gospel. God takes away and cleanses us of our sins. The penalty for our sins is absorbed in his son on the cross. And the cross is God's chesed, his covenantal kindness and promise. Now, listen, no matter how heinous, no bad, you wicked your heart is, God can and will cleanse it. The resurrection is, is the promise that there is no situation that is so dead that he cannot renew and restore you. Gospel repentance sees how serious and heinous our sins are, yet grasps how great the love and mercy of God is. Gospel-centered repentance has no excuse for our sins, but falls on the mercy of God. Finding satisfaction in him. Gospel repentance turns from death, embraces life. Gospel repentance produces joy. Because our union with Christ means that our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been imputed to Christ, placed on him. His righteousness, his perfect life imputed to us. He gets what we deserve. We get what he earned. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's what communion is. It's an opportunity for the church to confess and repent of sin. It's an opportunity for us to, in the quietness of our heart, to talk to Jesus and be honest, to confess our sins, to to ask for a willing spirit, to ask God to turn you from your sin, to find more delight and joy in him than in your sin, to see the gospel afresh and new, that his body, the bread is his body that was broken for you, the perfect life of Jesus snuffed out. His cup was the blood that was shed, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. 
If you're a believer in Christ today, come to the table. Take up the bread, drink of the cup, confess your sins, repent of the sins, but don't end there. Rejoice. Rejoice in the joy of your forgiveness. Rejoice. And maybe you're here this morning, you've never confessed your sins. You've never been honest with God. I'm going to ask you by the power of the Spirit that you're honest with yourself, honest with God. And you're a sinner. You, you, you know your sin. You know that you have violated the commands of God. You know you sin against people, which is ultimately against God. And just tell God, I've sinned. I know I have sinned, and I, and, I, and I want forgiveness. Forgive me. I'm going to turn from living my own life, being my own Savior, Lord, and I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to turn to you, Lord Jesus, who died for my sins, who rose from the dead. I believe and I trust, and I yield my life completely to you. That's what repentance is all about. And if you've never done that, do so as the band plays, and then come and you can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us as a new fellow a brother or sister in Christ. But if you're not a Christian, this table is not for you. We love you. We're glad you're here. We want you every week. And we're going to keep telling you that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Sorry, that's all I got for you. <laughs> we want you here. We love you. Just worship. Just, just sing and, and, and play. Uh, um, excuse me. Sing and, and uh, we'll talk to you some more. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I, I think that We can all walk away from the life of David, the repentance of David, and say that we need to repent and we need life. Lord, just as David was rejoicing, being glad in all that you have done, Lord, he saw it as a glimpse. He he didn't even see the reality at that moment. Of the perfect life, the virgin birth, the perfect life, the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the empty tomb, Lord, we have that truth in greater detail. Father, so help us to confess our sins, not hide it. Help us to repent in the gospel, knowing that Jesus has done it all for us. Help us to turn from our sin with a desire to follow and walk with you, not in order to get acceptance, but because you have done it for us. Help us, Lord, to repent well in the gospel and to rejoice well because of all that you are and all that you have done for us in Christ, we pray. Amen.